the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. So we've had a lot of wet years lately. Well, in the last couple of years anyway. Dams are full. We've experienced flooding. And it's been a difficult harvest period for many of you in all sorts of industries from horticulture to broadacre cropping. So are you ready for a dry one? Are you expecting a drier than average year this year? We're going to delve into the long-term forecast today on the Country Hour. What are you expecting? What do you think will happen? What are you preparing for? I'd love to hear from you on today's program. 1300 or you can text 0467 Plus, an independent is pitching for a major agricultural policy to be included by the federal government in the budget. So I had this um, policy fully costed before the last election and it came in at $32 million uh, per year uh, to establish this. Um, but the gains that can be made from this well and truly pay for that. More on that coming up in the program shortly. A giant name in the world of almonds is leaving his position. We'll hear about that. And you'll also uh, talk with us about what's happening with Scott's uh, refrigeration transport company and what that means for the food system and for agriculture. I'd be interested in your views there. 1300 977 to call us on the program right now, though. Let's get some rural news with Emma Field today. Emma. G'day Warwick. Let's start rural news today on the high seas. Around 250 kilograms of sea cucumber along with 15 shark fins have been seized from an Indonesian fishing vessel that was intercepted in Australian waters. The boat and its eight crew members have since been towed to Darwin for destruction and charges could be coming for crew members. Peter Van Sloas from the Australian Fisheries Management Authority says capturing the vessel was a big operation. Uh, the vessel was uh, sighted by aerial surveillance coordinated by Maritime Border Command early last week and uh, it was then subsequently intercepted by uh, a Royal Australian Navy patrol vessel, HMS Armadale, and apprehended and the vessel and the crew have been brought to Darwin uh, and AFMA is conducting further investigations into the activities of the crew. The West Australian Agriculture Minister has admitted defeat and expects the federal government to shut down the live export of sheep from Australia. After meeting with her federal counterpart, Murray Watt, WA Ag Minister Jackie Jarvis says it's clear the federal government plans to follow through with its policy to end Australia's live sheep trade and it's her job to now help with the transition process. Minister Jarvis says her department is already working on what that transition process looks like and what it's going to cost. The Federal Labor Government took this to an election. They won the election. They believe they have a mandate. I have certainly pushed the issue, um, I think, as, as, you know, as hard as I can. But it's, it's, I think we've, we're now at the point where, where Murray Watt has said, you know, both in Senate estimates and on your show, that, that this is happening. My role now is what the transition looks like, what the timelines are for transition. I've made it really clear to him, well, we need more feedlots, we need more processing facilities. I don't know what that looks like yet. Um, I've asked Deeper to sort of as a matter of urgency do some work about the modelling of what we might need. So that's happened in the last few weeks when it, when it sort of became clear after Minister Watt had been at Senate Estimates that I've asked them to step up and actually provide some of that information. So it is, it is now about how we transition. I don't want to lose our wool industry, so I need to understand what that looks like now moving mm. forward. 
Still in WA, the Pilbara region is celebrating good rains arriving over the last week. Pilbara stations such as Warrumbee and Sherlock Station between Caratha and Port Hedland received about 70 millimetres, adding to good to- totals all week long. And further north, the rains have caused more disruptions in the East Kimberley, which is now not accessible by road after the closure of the Victoria Highway at Buller. But Michael Percy from Yaline Station, about 200 kilometres southwest of Caratha, says rain in the last week has really turned things around. The last six days, we've had about 160, and I think really very good rain. Uh, it's looking a whole lot better than it was a week ago. We'd had rain before, um, but there's a couple of areas that were uh, good, and then other areas that missed out. Yeah, normal story for thunderstorms. Yeah, this rain's sort of covered most of the place to one extent or another. The amount of rain like that sort of gets the ground very wet, and um, yeah, we'll get good growth feed out of this rain and hopefully it doesn't um, stop raining altogether and get really hot. <laughs> and if, it, if we hadn't had this rain by now, we would have been progressing our mustering plans, you know, starting sort of early. But that's sort of kind of off the table a bit now. So, you know, it'll possibly be a bit later and some other maintenance and projects get done and said. Tasmanian farmers and factory workers say the day of the big chip shortage on supermarket shelves appears to be over. Tasmanian organiser of the AMWU, Mike Wickham, says workers at Simplot and McCain's are busy processing potatoes from the new harvest around the clock. He expects them to fill shelves and freezers soon. They're pulling spuds out of the ground flat out, both companies. They're um, both back to full operations, which for them is uh, a 24-7 arrangement, 12-hour shifts. So um, they are full on trying to get chips back onto the uh, into the uh, onto the shelves. They'll go out to the all the normal all the normal um, um, contracts. But so they go retail. They'll go to the likes of Woolworths, Coles, the uh, fast food factories, um, IGA. They'll all get them. They'll all should be starting to get them on the shelves now. And that wraps up rural news. And a good way to end rural news. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field. So while you're all out, I know Alice was talking about it earlier. While you're all out eating potato cakes. Uh, and their potato cakes and judging the best ones. You now know more are on the way with a harvest happening, at least in Tasmania. We heard yesterday the Ballarat harvest is looking a little bit late this year due to weather conditions. We'll try and get an update on that for you as well. Maybe for a spud grower, you can let us know. 1300 to call. Uh, let's talk weather, though, first on the country. Are we looking at going straight from the generally wetter on the east coast La Nina weather system to the generally drier El Nino this season? Well, according to the 11 climate models, Agriculture Victoria's Dale Gray monitors, the odds of that are pretty high. They're all tipping a week to normal El Nino will develop in winter. And he told Angus Verley he doesn't think the evidence is completely there yet, but he's still watching. Well, at the moment, um, we have a Pacific Ocean that's cooled, uh, what was very cold, uh, has now come back to complete normality. uh, And the undersea ocean in that is still set up somewhat uh, La Nina-like. But the real interesting is that the atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean, as measured by the the cloud patterns, the trade winds, and the pressure patterns with the the Southern Oscillation Index, simply hasn't got the memo, Angus. And it's it's just... uh, it's still continuing on very much in a La Nina-like fashion. Okay, so those big drivers still indicating 
La Nina pattern? Well, I think that's, and that's what we're seeing down the eastern coast of Australia, that the possibility of getting big rainfall is, is still there if the right triggers are available to bring that moisture down. Now, we would expect um, that that will, bra- it will break down sometime in autumn, sometime in the next two months. Uh, we will see everything, both the atmosphere and the ocean, returning to normal in the Pacific. OK, that's, that's, so that's an expectation, but the indicators sort of aren't there at the moment? No, not yet. Um, I think our first indicators will be that we start to see either some pressure changes, so the pressure becoming more normal at Darwin and Tahiti, or we start to see some changes in the trade winds. Um, The trade winds are that key feature at this time of the year that either um, kick off La Nina type events or or potentially kick off El Nino type events. And so at the moment those trade winds are blowing very strongly from the east, which is La Nina-like. But if we were to see some reversal in those trade winds, that would be the first indicator that maybe something's afoot. Okay, so they would flip around and blow from the west and push that warm water away from Australia? Yes, yeah, so we, over the last three years uh, with the La, the La Ninas, we've had, we've had a really large build-up both at the equator and north and south of that in the western Pacific of a large amount of warm water to depth. And that is going to be very prone to be pushed over to the coast of South America with some, if, if we get some of that sort of westerly wind burst. Okay, so it sounds like perhaps we do go into an El Nino pattern, but the indicators aren't there at this stage. But, but at the same time, all of those uh, forecast models that you study, I think there's at least 11 of them, they're all forecasting an El Nino? It's the amazing thing. Angus, they're, um, they're all saying in the next three months things stay relatively neutral and benign, but they're all uh, going... T- to some sort of weak to normal like El Nino pattern uh, in, in for winter, uh, generally around the July-August period. And, um, and this is the bizarrest thing because, as I said, at the moment there is no evidence that that is happening and there's no evidence that it could happen. But nonetheless, all those models are, are predicting that. So when I'm thinking about using model forecasts, um, I like to... The model saying one thing is, is, is something... But I'd love to be able to see some evidence to back that up that I can see how this plausibly either is happening or could happening. Whereas at the moment, it's simply just a model forecast. And people need to be mindful that at this time of the year, generally, when the Pacific Ocean is in reset mode, that it's the, it's the worst time of the year to be making those predictions and they have the poorest predictability. OK, so if, it, if it's a tough time to make the forecast, if, if you don't think the evidence is there, why have we got this, this consensus? Well, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, Angus, and I simply, I simply don't know the answer to that. One can only imagine that they all see some westerly windburst event happening. I think it's interesting times, but it really is a case of really just being um, aware and not alarmed, I think, at this time of the year, Angus. There's, there's going to be a lot of talk about El Nino, but at this time of the year, it's simply that. And, you know, until we actually start to see some evidence of that flipping in that direction, I wouldn't be paying too much credence for it in terms of my farm management. If we don't get that reversal of those trade winds, it's impossible for an El Nino to develop? It, it will be. There has to be that reversal to sustain a, an El Nino. So the, if we don't get that reversal of the trade winds, I think the most likely outcome is that we'll have a neutral year in the Pacific. And people might think, oh, you beauty, that might mean average. But it's important to point out that neutral years have had a range of outcomes, both from wet, average and dry. So if it's a neutral Pacific, it's really a case of anything could happen. 
Um, but if we do get an El Nino, it tends to spin up the chances of it being much drier. And a lot of people, particularly, well, nearly over the most of Victoria this year, are going into the start of this season with quite full profiles of moisture left over from last year. So there's a really good insurance policy there, and particularly in the drier areas, uh, that a drier season may not be all that bad. And on that point, we, we heard in your presentation a, a question from a farmer at Rapanyup, I think it was, who said he doesn't have to scratch down very far before he hits mud and he's got got a full profile and he was looking at all of those uh, models saying El Nino and thinking that sounds pretty good. Yes, I think there's a lot of people with a very full profile that um, are not looking for a very wet start to the season or it's going to be quite challenging getting their crop in. So... Um, I think therein lies the challenge in the coming, the coming months. Um, whether we end up with an average or, a, or an early break is completely unknown at the moment. Um, but I think a lot of people are just looking for a very friendly, gentle start to the season. That's Dale Gray from Agriculture Victoria speaking there to Angus Verley. I'd love to know what that means for you on your property. And is it something you're expecting this year? Do you expect to be uh, preparing for dry conditions this year than certainly you've had in the last couple? Give us your thoughts. Send a text 0467 842 722. Let's talk the budget. Yes, we're in March. Federal budget comes out in May and in the lead up to that, the independent member for Indi, Helen Haynes, is pushing for the federal government to fund a network of 200 agriculture extension offices across 20 regional centres to support farmers to achieve carbon neutral certification. She says she's had discussions with the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt on the policy which she took to the election, uh, which would cost about $32 million a year. Annie Brown spoke to the member for Indi at the Farming Carbon Conference in Beechworth about the policy and where it's at. Yes, so one of the very first ministers I met with after the election was Minister Murray Watt, Minister for Agriculture. I put my plan to him and explained why we needed these agricultural extension offices around 20 regions in Australia, 200 I've put to him. Um, I've subsequently followed up with him several times and I'm hearing from the minister that uh, he is hearing similar things across the nation as well, that we need this. I think think there's a, a great opportunity for the government to invest in this. I'm calling on them to do that at the May budget, I'm hopeful that they will. Uh, and it's not just, of course, in, um, in carbon credits, it's also in biodiversity management as well. Real opportunities here uh, for farmers. Again, whether they in fact uh, want to trade in carbon credits, um, ultimately they all want to have highly productive farms and ones that are really uh, set up for a change in our climate. How much would it cost the government to implement these 200 offices? So I had this um, policy fully costed before the last election and it came in at $32 million uh, per year uh, to establish this. Um, But the gains that can be made from this well and truly pay for that. Uh, And I think this is a very sound investment that the government really must be giving serious consideration to. And what's the likelihood of it getting up, do you think? Well, um, I can't, uh, can't predict what the government will do in their budget, but I can tell you and your listeners that I'm advocating strongly for this and I do so because farmers tell me this is one of the things the government can do to support them in the transition to carbon neutrality. We've had agriculture extension offices previously, is that mm. right? Yeah. Um, 
Right throughout the history of agriculture, there's been moments of great transition as the science uh, teaches us uh, new and improved ways to increase productivity to feed the world, uh, new and improved ways to look after the planet as we do so. And agricultural extension officers have played a key role in that. Uh, so I'm suggesting now that it's time to put more of them on the ground uh, because we're facing one of the greatest transitions since industrialisation, and that's our, uh, our transition to a climate neutral uh, agricultural sector. So I want to see the government take up this idea and get those uh, extension officers out there to assist our farmers. Why do we need to bring back these extension officers into the Department of Agriculture? Yeah, I think that uh, the mechanism of where we put the extension officers is, is an open question. We have many uh, natural resource management organisations where an extension officer could be located. It might be in the Department of Agriculture. It could be in a land care group. could be in our drought hubs. The key thing is, though, that farmers are telling me that navigating this space of adapting to, mitigating for and, and perhaps getting into carbon markets uh, presenting themselves and their produce to international markets is complex and assistance at farm level, context specific, knowing that uh, what you need to do in an electorate like Indi, where we have very high rainfall and high levels of soil carbon, is very different to what you might need to do in, in another geographical region. So really important. It's what the people doing the work of the farming are saying we need and I'm there to support them in making that ask to government. And in terms of policy from the federal government, what would you like to see happen in terms of agriculture and carbon farming? Yeah, well, I would like to see uh, ongoing and increased investment into uh, the research and science. And today at this conference, we're hearing from some of our expert researchers on the big questions uh, around uh, carbon sequestration, understanding the soil science, uh, understanding some of the additives that are going uh, into our uh, herd feeding, and knowing that methane is, is one of our our greatest challenges when it comes to agriculture. We know there's some terrific research, uh, some great innovation around uh, methane reducing um, uh, stock supplements, but the cost is still really high. So uh, I'd be calling on government research and development, keep that, uh, keep that money coming, but make it more and uh, assist our farmers with the translation of that new research into practice through extension offices. That's the Federal Independent Member for Indi, Dr Helen Haynes, speaking there to Annie Brown, mainly about her plan to have a network of agriculture extension offices across 20 regional centres to help farmers become carbon neutral. I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that is something that'll end up in the budget? You can let us know. Let's go to the almond industry right now because one of the biggest names in that industry, the CEO and Managing Director of one of the largest almond companies, is finishing up on Friday. Paul Thompson has been at the helm of Select Harvests for a decade. During that time, the company's orchard footprint has grown by more than 6,000 hectares of almond orchards. He told Kelly Hollingworth about his proudest achievements. We're a much stronger company than when I joined. I'm proud of that. and you know We've got substantial orchards in all three growing regions and we've continued to innovate. And, you know, you're doing... Having our own power station on the plant is uh, pretty good, and um, you know, and there's some, you know, probably the friendships I've made in the industry as well. It's a very challenging time for the almond industry. The cost of production is rising, but the price being paid for almonds isn't increasing. How much pressure does that put on companies like Select Harvests? Lots of pressure, but. We've got a reasonably strong balance sheet so we can see our way through it. Um, you know, we recognise that this business is a cyclical business. We've got trees that are going to last for 30 years and there's been high price periods and low price periods. So you just got to be conservative and 
have enough cash in the bank to make sure that you can live through these harder times, which I think, you know, to be honest, this is the, probably the longest down cycle in the armoured industry in the last 30 years, um, with a combination of pandemic and then the flooding and all those sorts of things. But, you know, I, I think we're seeing green shoots um, in the industry and some of these prices are just a one-off. I mean, fertiliser's already started coming down, agri-cab's coming down. So, yeah, you just got to ride, ride through it. You've just got to have faith in what you do. In the past, you've indicated the structure of the water market needs to be fixed. Do you still believe that that needs to happen? Yes, definitely. It's a market that lacks transparency. It's a market that needs better governance over it. And it's a, and the whole Murray-Darling Basin resource plan, you know, needs to deliver what the government initially promised. And, you know, the amount of uncertainty and anomalies in it um, just needs to be fixed up. I mean... We're not worrying about it at the moment because there's no drought. The second there's a drought, there's going to be people screaming from the screaming from the rooftops. This isn't working. Everything works when there's abundance of stuff. When there's a lack or a shortage, that's when the pressure comes on, and that's not you know that's not relatively far away. I mean, if you use the analogy to a glass of water, the glass is the same size and maybe even shrinking a little bit, but there's a larger larger straw sucking out of it. So we've got to keep our eyes on that. Now that you're no longer going to be involved in select harvests, will you still be talking about water and how you think it needs to be changed or are you going to leave that battle up to other people now? I still have a personal interest in it and, you know, if the opportunity arises that I can influence in some way a better outcome for the Murray-Darling basis, I'm more than um, comfortable to get involved. Um, It's pretty hard as a private citizen to have much of a voice, but... um, you know, depending what I do and where I end up, may be very different. But, you know, it's still something that I'm passionate about. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, there's many social and physical issues we need to fix in the world in, in the world in Australia, and that's probably one that is very fixable and we need to get on with. Select Harvest is intending to be carbon neutral by 2050, if not sooner. How essential is that for the company? It's the expectation of the community that we have to have to live up to. And... You know, there's no doubt. We're not climate change deniers. We, we, we believe that climate change is going on and we're more heavily impacted than many. I mean, look what just happened in the Murray River. That 1950s is the last time, 70 years ago, they had anything that was even close to that sort of climatic event. And California's gone in and out of drought in three years. So, um, you know, definitely climate change is there. Communities expect us to do something about it. All businesses will, you know, have made, most businesses are making a similar promise. The river becoming climate neutral within their own operations or finding other ways to offset their carbon usage. And, you know, that's a commitment that Select has because our shareholders want it, our customers want it. It would be very difficult to trade in certain parts of the world, for instance, Europe, unless you do have these sorts of commitments or activities going on, which is the right thing. Um, It's a bit, you know, you can quote it to, you know, should we have... 14-year-olds working in our business, for instance. No, we shouldn't. Um, and the community won't allow that now. And But when my great-grandfather was alive, everyone at 14 was working. So that's why the world's a better place today than it was 200 years ago. California is the world's biggest grower of almonds. They've battled drought for a few years and I think there were some expectations that things might have improved in this coming season, but um, that's not looking like it might be the case as a result of some pretty poor weather that's come through in the last week or so. What What's your understanding of, um, I, I guess, the situation there and what that might do for their um, high inventory levels? Well, the inventory levels were being 
depleted fairly rapidly before this event. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's uh, this is really like having snow in in August when we're in pollination on your orchards and hail and wind. Uh, not ideal for bees. Um, you have no idea what the impact is going to be, but it's uh, it's looking more and more significant as it goes on. The forecast is good. Now, they're, you know, in many ways, their misfortune is going to be our fortune because at the moment we've got a pretty good harvest conditions and we've got a relatively high-quality crop and returning to our normal in-shell yield. So, you know, it could restore some profitability to the Australian industry and could definitely raise the global price of almonds, which would be good for everybody. But, you know, unfortunately, someone's going to suffer during this. And But that's the risk you take in agriculture, isn't it? Your almond harvest in Victoria and South Australia is underway. How's that going? Because uh, it definitely was a challenging time 12 months ago. Yeah, look, I mean, it's always the end of harvest, which is the challenging time. The start the start this year has been good. The weather forecast is good. We've now started in New South Wales as well. We haven't seen anything from our New South Wales products in our plant yet, and we haven't cranked up our plant. But, you know, we're encouraged that it's looking normal. And, you know, after the year, the few last few years we've had, normal is great. We're pretty excited about what we're seeing on our on our stock pads at the moment. Are you envisaging that you'll have a bigger harvest volume-wise than last year? Uh, it's touch and go. We didn't have the greatest of growing seasons and then, the you know, the, the rains, the spring rains. But what's exciting us most is the quality. And, you know, quality can... Uh, Quality and pricing can make up for volume pretty rapidly. Almond consumption is increasing and it has been pretty much year on year for a while now. Why do you think people are making the move to almonds and how much longer can that be sustained for? Well, I think there's a few reasons. There's an expanding usage of almonds. More people are drinking as milk, more people are eating protein balls, more people are eating healthier things. The other one is the healthier part of the population, where you know, people who have been educated about food is a bigger percentage. I mean, the people who are exiting the world generally have less healthy diets than those that are, have grown up to succeed them. My, my grandchildren will have a healthier diet than I have. I have a healthier diet than my father. Um, so I can't see that trend. So it's just, it's a natural, it's a more, almost statistical as to how the market will continue to grow. It's a product that's got very few negatives to it. Your last day is on Friday. What's yeah. next for you? I'm going to take a bit of a break, I'm going to have a bit of a holiday with my wife. My daughter's getting married, so I'm going to do a bit of shredding for the wedding to make sure I look the appropriate part of the part of the bride. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm going to have a relax and then I'll get back into something in the not-too-distant future. There's a couple of things on the radar, but look, I, I'd love to be involved, continue to be involved within the Murray-Darling Basin at some point, in, you know, within, within that community because I think it's a, a wonderful community and I'll enjoy, I'll enjoy it, my every minute I've been there. Well, one of the biggest names of Harvest, in his own words, going to be shredding for his daughter's wedding in uh, retirement, at least stepping down as CEO and Managing Director of Select Harvest. That was uh, Paul Thompson speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth on his way out this Friday, uh, which is an interesting change in an interesting period for almonds in Australia. You're listening to The Country Hour. Let's head to the newsroom and find out what's making regional news headlines with Rio Davis again today. Good afternoon, Rio. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news around regional Victoria, the state government has defended the amount of funding being provided to councils hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games. 
A City of Greater Geelong councillor says it can't afford to provide financial support for the Games as it struggles to contain a $150 budget blowout. The Minister for Commonwealth Games Delivery, Jacinta Allen, says the government is investing nearly $300 million into new facilities in Geelong, along with other Games-related investments. The man arrested over the stabbing death of fruit picker David Gaskell at Manangatang last year has pleaded guilty to murder after the prosecution agreed to withdraw two of the four charges against him. Dale Newman of Albury appeared in the Mildura Magistrates Court this morning via video link from Melbourne Assessment Prison. He pleaded guilty to murdering Mr Gaskell and recklessly causing injury to a second victim. Two other aggravated assault charges against Mr Newman were dropped. He'll appear before the Supreme Court at Melbourne for directions hearing on the 16th of March. A man whose brother went missing nearly 48 years ago is planning a final search at an old mine in central Victoria. Daryl Floyd is speaking with a specialist contractor about searching a mine at a mine at Bungbong Hill near where his brother Terry was last seen in 1975. Terry Floyd disappeared from the side of the Pyrenees Highway between Maryborough and Avoca when he was 12 years old. A coroner determined in 2001 Terry was murdered. And the Butterfly Foundation says regional Victorians with eating disorders face greater barriers accessing treatment than those in metropolitan areas. The not-for-profit is calling for the federal government to provide further funding to increase support services in regional and rural locations. Federal Health Minister Mark Butler has told the ABC the government is supporting the delivery of residential eating disorder centres in all states through $63 million in funding. For more regional news at any time you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news thanks rio the victorian country hour with warwick long on abc radio victoria where it is uh, 25 to 1 o'clock. Let's head to the Weather Bureau to find out what's happening with the was. We've been talking a lot about it already with El Nino and La Nina chat, but let's talk the here and now with Alana Cherney, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Alana. Good afternoon. How's it going? Yeah, good. How's it looking around Victoria today? Yeah, look, we've got a continuation of these mostly mild conditions to start off autumn for the next few days after quite a cool start to, oh, quite a cool end to summer yesterday. So today we've got generally southwesterly flow with a couple of weaker troughs um, passing through or clipping southern parts of the state. Uh, we've, we've got quite a bit of cloud cover through southern parts with some isolated uh, showers or, or drizzle this morning, but haven't picked up um, much precip except for in um Far eastern parts of Gippsland where overnight and into this morning we had this kind of uh, smaller scale low bringing some onshore flow. So we did pick up about 30 millimetres um, right in oh. far east Gippsland. That's a little bit of rain, 30 millimetres. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, but generally um, more of those uh, smaller rainfall totals over the next few days, just a couple of millimetres or so through southern parts today. And again tomorrow, uh, again mild with, with uh, southerly flows, some isolated showers about the south, uh, maybe a little bit of fog in the morning. And Friday, again, quite similar as we continue to be uh, ridge-dominated really into Friday. Um, but things get a little bit more interesting into Saturday as we do see a trough extend from, uh, from New South Wales south into Victoria. So a bit more of a, of a classic, classic summer easterly flow 
with potential for some showers and thunderstorms through eastern parts on Saturday and uh, also warming up a little bit from Saturday and particularly into the Sunday uh, where wind will turn northerly and again we'll have some showers and storms through eastern parts. And then late on Sunday and through Monday, uh, we're looking at a cold front coming through. So some more shower activity, particularly on the Monday, and um, a second cold front coming through on the Tuesday. So um, some some cold, colder temperatures, but potential for a little bit more rainfall, particularly about southern parts uh, early into next week. Okay, so that's good. Yeah, so really, the weekend into early next week could be sort of something to watch, certainly weather-wise. Yeah, exactly. With those storms in the east throughout the weekend, and then there's those fronts come through early next week, uh, could see um, could see uh, some more rainfall and storms as well. How how large does that rainfall look to you, Alana? Yeah, so look, there is certainly still some uncertainty, but at this stage, Monday probably looks like the day with the highest rainfall. Uh, we're on and south of the ranges. We're generally um, looking. Um, kind of widespread up to about 10 millimetres, but could see some areas um, with 20 millimetres on that Monday. And then with a few kind of smaller totals um, on the Sunday and Tuesday. Um, So cumulatively could see up to 30 in some areas. Yeah, a bit bit of rain around. We really haven't had falls even of that degree for for a while, apart from areas of East Gippsland yesterday. Yeah, I think it was still some uncertainty, so one to watch. Um, But... Yeah, it could be a little bit with this next system. And anything warning-wise we should keep an eye on in the near future? Doesn't look like we'll have um, any warnings out over the next few days. Uh, probably just on the weekend with those thunderstorms, um, a slight chance of some severe thunderstorm warnings, which would be um, on those days. Oh, okay, we'll have to, to keep watching from here. Beautiful. Anything else we need to know? Not for now. Beautiful. Really appreciate the update. That is uh, Alana Cherney, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the forecast area. If you've had any rain, let us know. Send us a text, 0467 842 Have one here on the text line. Um, and Nigel at Vespa. G'day, Was Jolly good afternoon. 3.8 millimetres today, 98.4 millimetres year to date, but the dust is down. Uh says Nigel at Vespa. Kevin says, does the bomb have such thing as a junior uh, weather forecaster? Not sure, Kevin, but the ones that we get to speak to are always referred to as senior weather forecasters. Uh, that's one for me to take up another day. And of course, as we learned on this program, not every radio weather cross is now done by a qualified meteorologist. I wonder if you're still a weather forecaster. If you're not a meteorologist, maybe that is a topic for another day, but probably not worth uh, bringing up here. Another text here saying, summer's over, rain's coming. You can tell us what you think about that. 0467 842 722. We'd love to have more of your thoughts here on the country. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. And let's talk uh, transport right now because uh, Scott's Refrigerated Logistics, a national freight company that counts supermarket giants Coles and Aldi among its clients, has entered voluntary administration with quarter-mentha-appointed receivers. Is this a big moment, I suppose, for transport and the movement of food around Australia, or is this an individual company? We'll have to keep an eye on things from here. But Quartermentha partner Scott Langdon says they've taken over running the business and have already had interest from potential buyers. 
Scots went into voluntary administration yesterday afternoon and it subsequently followed um, Court of Menthus appointment as receivers. So Court of Menthus now in control of the business and um, uh, we facilitated the payment of supplies yesterday. Uh, the 1,500 employees are getting paid um, tomorrow and um, uh, on time and uh, we are now immediately commencing a sale process to, to find a new owner for the business. Uh, we're continuing with the business as usual and um, we just want to make sure that the business can operate in a safe manner so employees can uh, do their job and provide good service to customers and uh, give a good, the customers a good customer experience. Interestingly, um, we've already had a, a bunch of parties reach out to the quarter method team in the past uh, 24 hours in relation to uh, the acquisition of the business. The Scots is a well-known um, participant in the logistics space and it's a highly sought-after asset. So we're really pleased with the number of people who have reached out so far and uh, we're engaging with them to try and sell the business as a going concern. That's Quarter Mentha partner Scott Langdon speaking to ABC News there. We reached out to the National Farmers Federation. Their CEO, Tony Maher, said in a statement, and I'll quote, the NFF is concerned about the impact of Scott's refrigerated logistics receivership on the transport and delivery of fresh produce across Australia. The fact that the collapse of a single company can disrupt such a large component of Australia's food supply chain demonstrates the severe issues Australia has with increasing market concentration in our supply chains. We hope the receivership process can resolve this company collapse quickly to allow a return to this to the transport and delivery of fresh produce from farmer to consumer that's the words of ceo of the national farmers federation tony ma speaking there michael kane is the secretary of the transport workers union and he's on the line with us on the country hour now michael kane welcome to the country hour Oh, thanks for having me. We're all on the outside looking in, I suppose, at what's happening here to Scott's Refrigerated Transport. But what, what do you think's happened to the company? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that um, uh, this is an industry that is very much under pressure. It's also an industry that, as you and your listeners will know, is very much at the heart of what makes Australia tick. Uh, I mean, we've seen the last four or five years, uh, we've been racked by natural disasters. First, we had fires, uh, of course, more recently, um, and still dealing from the fallout from floods. And in between that, we had the COVID crisis. Uh, and what has become really apparent is just how important uh, our transport supply chains are. Uh, I mean, I know people... Yeah, I would, would have thought know... some of those events would have been good for the transport industry in terms of showing their importance and, and the need of truckies, essentially, to keep Australia moving. Exactly. I, I think if you hit the nail on the head, it's, it's demonstrated to the community that, you know, it is such an essential part uh, of what makes Australia tick. And um, our workers really put themselves out. Think about those workers in the COVID crisis who, um, who had to run the, run the gauntlet of the virus long before there was any uh, sign of a vaccine, um, you know, navigating different um, rules across borders, etc., you know, these are these are really the backbone of Australia. These trucking truckies and these trucking companies. But the problem is that this is an industry that, for years now, has been under such incredible pressure. Um, what we've seen, um, as opposed to say 40 years ago, when um, companies uh, like the major retailers and manufacturers had their own transport arm, we've seen um, the task of transport being given out to third-party companies, which is fine, but increasingly those companies being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed on their contracts 
um, to the point where they become very, very difficult um, to, to make and maintain uh, viably. And um, what we see in transport is a very, very high level of um, liquidations. Um, but also, of course, when um, companies are on tight margins, um, they are sometimes forced to cut corners, um, both on maintenance, but also on how they push their drivers to perform the, the work, sometimes um, pushing them to work too long. And we saw a a significant fatigue report um, out of Victoria uh, just two weeks ago. These are issues that have been well known for a long period of time, Warwick, and I think that um, uh, when you have an, uh, an instance like Scott's, it just drives home um, the problems in the industry and that we've got to get our heads around them as a community to make a difference into the future. Yeah, and I'll need to ask you more about the, the employees and truck drivers of Scott's, and we'll get to that in a moment. But just before we get there, uh, the first instance is Coles, one of the companies that Scott's Refrigeration is working for, quite famously last year wrote to all its suppliers saying, don't pass on your costs of increased inflation and fuel prices to us. Um, Could have actions like that from the supermarkets that this company was dealing with affected the ability of Scott's to operate here? I think it's been years uh, in the making of this. Um, I think that uh, we've had serious concerns about some of the contractual and commercial practices from uh, the top of supply chains. I should say, um, make it clear to your listeners that Coles, uh, in this instance, at Scotts, um, is uh, is presently being very constructive about how it's supporting workers. Um, it's even p- providing financial support as we speak um, across the period of the next two weeks to see if the sale process can go through. But you're quite right. There are commercial pressures and practices. Um, that exist uh, that put incredible pressure on these companies. They're, they are not in a position of commercial equality with those that um, uh, they have contracts with, uh, and that means they effectively price takers. And when that occurs in transport, if you don't get the mix right, um, then you're on wafer thin margins. It only takes something very little to disturb. For example, um, the fuel... Uh, not that this was little, but you've got the fuel shock um, from the Ukraine crisis. Um, you've got COVID, you've got floods, um, you've got um, general inflation pressures. Uh, and then all of a sudden, what was uh, marginally OK, all of a sudden becomes marginally not OK. And marginally not OK can't last very long when you've got 500 trucks, 1,000 trailers and 1,500 employees. That's the problem here. Yeah, what does this mean to the employees and truck drivers? Are they essentially employees or are there contractors involved here with the Scots receivership? Well, as with many companies across the country uh, in transport, there's a mixture of direct hire employees, um, of small fleet operators, that is, um, operators that um, have only a few trucks but are contracted, subcontracted to the Scots Group, and and subcontractor owner drivers as well that do work um, uh, that that Scots has contracts for. Are they the most vulnerable here? Well, yeah. I I mean, the the problem with this, uh, as we've known for a couple of decades, is that um, these pressures um, on the industry and on the economics mean that there is a, a, a real incentive to contract out work, to try and cut costs. So if you as a major transport operator are under a massive squeeze, um, you might not be able to afford to put your own employees into trucks, so you'll seek out um, another company um, or an owner-driver that might be able to do the work at a cheaper cost. And, of course, there's only so far that can go before the person performing the work is under such immense pressure that we have 
safety concerns on our roads. And um, just in this year alone, it's only the 1st of March, um, 37 Australians have lost their lives in truck crashes and eight of them have been truck drivers. So we've got a situation here where um, this is a community concern. It's really a community crisis um, about putting stabilisers in place. And that's why we're encouraged after 10 years of federal government inaction that the current federal government has indicated its intention um, to regulate, to put some stabilisers in place um, for the road transport market. And, and now the task ahead of us is to make sure that the entire parliament backs that in and backs it in quickly so we can get mm. some sustainability back we'll, we'll have to see where that goes from here. Uh, particularly Michael Keynes with you. He's uh, from the Transport Workers Union. We're speaking about the collapse of Scott's refrigeration, which, as we've heard earlier from Quartermentha, they're quite confident they'll be able to sell the business as a going concern. You mentioned just before, in the meantime, companies, major companies like Coles and so forth, have been contributing and working to keep the, the operation of the business going in the meantime. Do you think a lot of large retailers like that and companies that use trucking will have to do actions like that in the future to make sure that that more trucking businesses can either be sold or or actions taken in the industry to stop collapses such as this? Yeah, well, I think um, it really comes down to this fundamental, that those that are reaping the economic benefit from transport, um, that is... And are setting the prices, yeah. They're setting the prices... Uh, they are going to have to pay more. Um, and it, it, it's a fundamental truth. We've got Aldi that's just announced an 8.4% profit. That's double the profit of the other uh, retailers in the country um, who have a massive footprint in Scots. Uh, are they so contributing the question, like Coles are in this regard? No, they're not. No, they're, no, they're not. I mean, they're, they're, all of the public statements, of course, are supportive at this time, but you can't wipe out years of commercial pressuring um, with a couple of public supportive um, uh, comments. I mean, Aldi has been pressuring in supply chains for years. Um, it's been the quiet underachiever, the quiet contributor to some of these commercial pressures. Uh, we know that they, um, they have a ruthless reputation uh, around the globe. Uh, we also know that Australian shoppers, um, many of them value Aldi because they can get prices uh, lower than they can at other places. But the fact of the matter is, this is one company that hasn't sat down with the Transport Workers Union and figured out how to make the supply chain safer. Coles and Woolworths have. We have written arrangements with both of those retailers um, which go to trying to build standards over time. Aldi refuses to do so. So we've got some work to do here. And yes, companies like Aldi will have to pay more to these companies so that there can be a sustainable outcome in the future. Michael Kane, we're out of time. It's been good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Warwick. Michael Kane, the Secretary of the Transport Workers Union on the collapse of Scott's refrigerated transport and well, what could be happening with the company and some of the issues facing the sector as well. It's really a wider discussion we should be having and we should continue to do so. Just before we head to the markets on the country, I want to bring you a story. I wanted to bring you this yesterday, so I'm really going to make sure we get some of it in now. A $12.7 million project will integrate what's been described as game-changing genetic material into Australian wheat allowing farmers to sow crops in a greater range of climate scenarios. The national program is being led by the CSIRO and will work with state agricultural bodies to fast-track industry adoption of wheat varieties with long coleoptile 
genetic traits. The coleoptile is the protective sheath of a plant, which encloses the emerging shoot and first leaves when it's starting to grow. The longer the coleoptile is, the better chance a crop sown deep into stored soil moisture has of making its way to the surface and thus surviving into a crop. Lead researcher and CSIRO plant uh, geneticist Dr Greg Rebetsky says long coleoptiles help take the risk out of seeding. It's, it's actually a national program uh, spread across um, nine different research organisations and so we're very much focusing on how we can build a system and a package so that with the release of new long coleoptile wheats and hopefully very soon, adoption will be, and take up will be very rapid and we'll optimise the conditions so that we get the very best out of the deep sown long coleoptile wheats. So there's aspects of nutrition, disease, machinery type, um, soil moisture, um, a- on top of the genetics that will be coming out of the breeding program. So it's, it's a whole package to maximise the adoption and reduce the risk of poor uptake and poor adoption. You have shown through your work uh, that there are amazing opportunities for um, increased yield through sowing deeper and and these uh, vigorous long coleoptile seeds. What are some of the key questions that... uh, Is it nutrition? Is is that one of the big ones? Probably the biggest question is, do we need to plant deep? And so we only really want to plant deep if we don't, if we have moisture at depth and we don't have topsoil moisture, and the forecast is for no rain, so getting away from that dry sowing issue and the risk of planting an uh, an early early uh, sorry a late maturing wheat, sowing that early and then not having it emerge for four to six weeks and delaying flowering. So for us, it's about making sure that the grower is comfortable that in deep sowing they're going to optimise and make use of that deep moisture so germination occurs right on time and the crop grows to its full potential. When we sow deep, we sow into moisture, it it takes two to three days to emerge from from depths of 10 or or more centimetres. But the benefit if we don't have topsoil moisture in sowing deep is the crop grows right from day one. And particularly in those early months of April, May, June, the conditions for water productivity are more, are more beneficial, so the exchange of water for carbon dioxide for making carbon, making, making biomass, is much more efficient. So we really want to try and ensure that, particularly with larger programs, we sow early, we sow into deep moisture, and we optimise the timely emergence of those long coleoptile types. And to, and to do that, we've got to be sure the nutrition is right, got to be sure that um, the the um, no concerns with disease. Um, we have to be sure we have the, the control of sowing depth, we have the right equipment, and all of that will vary right across Australia with soil type and, and, and with, with the soil moisture. So it will potentially uh, also vary from year to year depending on, on what's happening with the season? Absolutely. There are years where we may not need to sow deep, and if that's the case, we we, we won't, we shouldn't. The long coleoptile wheats can be sown shallow. So it's only if we um, are sowing deep that we, um, and we need to sow deep that we, that we can take advantage of the long coleoptile. But what's been really interesting is there's also other systems that we're seeing the benefit of long coleoptile, irrespective, uh, independent of water. And with soil amelioration, 
where you've got variable sowing depth. A long coleoptile wheat gives growers some capacity and some surety of sowing in an uneven seabed and ensuring reliable uh, seeding emergence. And so Stephen Davies and Michael Lamond SLR um, are both working with me on this project to try and understand better the capacity with soil amelioration and long coleoptile ensuring emergence. That is Greg Rubetsky, Dr. Greg Rubetsky from the CSRRO speaking there to Lucinda Joes. We'll have to keep following that one. Market time. Let's start in Lean Gather today with Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day, Warwick. There were 470 more at 22.60 with the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality was mixed with secondary cattle well supplied. Trade cattle sold up to 20 cents cheaper. Grown steers and bullocks eased slightly. Crossbred manufacturing steers gained 10, while Frisian steers eased on some sales. Heavy beef cows sold firm, while dairy lots slipped 10 to 20 cents with processors loading cows for an estimated 5.41 to 6.12 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls improved slightly. Grown steers and bullocks sold from 364 to 398. Heavy Frisian steers 259 to 330. Crossbreds 315 to 380. Most light and medium weight cows 200 to 275. Heavyweights 256 to 315. Heavy bulls 264 to 320. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. To see how the sheep are going, let's go to Horsham and Graham Palmer. Good afternoon, everyone. Lamb supply increased to 6,100, and sheep numbers are up at about 1,000 head. Quality was mixed with a good run of heavy lambs penned. Use a buying group in tenor operate in a firm market on the lighter weights and a few dollars year on the trade weights and heavy lambs. Medium and heavy trade weight lambs sold from 170 to 218. Extra heavy lambs sold from 248 to 262. Restockers paid from 64 to 171. 24 to 70 for light weights. $55 for runner merino lambs. Sheep sold to easier Trend with a competition back five to ten dollars ahead at times. Merino ewes sold to one twenty-five. Heavy crossbred ewes to one twenty. Light trade weight lamb sold from one forty-four to one sixty-eight, averaging seven fifty to eight hundred. Medium trade weight three and four score sold from one seventy to one ninety-three, averaging seven sixty to eight hundred. The export weight lamb sold from two ten to two forty-three. They've averaged around eight hundred cents. The medium weight sheep sold from 58 to 91, averaging 300 to 355. Then Graham Palmer at Horsham from LA. Thanks for that, Graham. Lucky last is Chris Agnew at Hamilton. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers came back at Hamilton this week, back to 7,340, a decrease of some 4,260, where the quality of the offering was good to plain, but still plain uh, displayed some evenness as well as breeding, however with less overall weight and quality than last week's offering. Not all the regular processes were present and not all were fully active, together in a, with good store competition in a market that was fully firm to $5 per head softer in places for all lambs to the trade and back to the paddock. Top shorn lambs made to $210, light lambs 12 to 16, 61 to 114, lambs 18 to 22 to the trade, 143 to 167 making between 730 and 760, medium trade lambs 22 to 26, 187 to 200 making the same money 730 to 760, heavy lambs making around 800 cents a kilo.
At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. That's about all we have for you on the country. Some great texts coming in on the tracking industry and the problems there. Try and make room for them tomorrow, actually, on the program where we have a little time. So you'll have to tune in then to the country. Hope you have a great afternoon. It's one o'clock.